Well, welcome all of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we come to his word. Father, we are so grateful for this time this morning, grateful that we are able to be here together with one another and together in your presence, knowing that indeed the the gathering of the body is a special thing. There is a very unique way in which your presence is with us as we gather together in your name. And so I ask this morning that this would be a special time, that we would be blessed as we hear from you through your word, that your spirit would do a work in us, that we as the body would do our work as well as you have brought us together, each one to minister to one another, to encourage one another, to stimulate one another, to love and good deeds. So, Father, we ask your grace and blessing on our time this morning, particularly now as we open your word, your, your inerrant word. Lord, may our hearts be, be attentive, our ears be listening, and may you touch us through this time. Draw us near to you. Change us. Make us more like our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. I encourage you to take your Bibles again and open to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 5 as we continue this morning in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in, in this for about eight or nine weeks now, and we're going to be continuing through the rest of the spring because it's just such a marvelous message and it's so deep and so very practical and needed in our lives. Today we come to the end of a section of this sermon. Throughout this section, Jesus has been, as he's been teaching the crowd there on the hillside, he's been blowing their minds as he has been correcting some misunderstandings and misapplications that they've had of the Old Testament law, the Old Testament scriptures, and as he has been explaining to them what God actually means, I'm sure for them it was mind-blowing, even as it is for us, as we've been going through in these weeks. Last week we saw that God not only doesn't want us to seek revenge, for example. He he, um, rather wants us to go the opposite way. Our tendency is to look for revenge. But instead, he calls us to give, to turn the other cheek, and to give, as it were, literally the shirt off our back, and to, to go the extra mile, and to give to those in need. All of these, we we are to be forgiving and we're to be generous with everyone and especially those who don't deserve it, those who are difficult. That was in last week. And we pick up today in verse 43 and through the end of chapter 5. And in each one of these passages we've looked at in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with, Jesus says, you have heard. And he takes them back to the Old Testament law and talks about something that they've heard and that the teachers have been teaching. And this, again, is the last of this section. Let's read here, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
And we saw last week with the little phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we saw that what the teachers had done was they had grabbed this phrase, this actual quote from the Old Testament law, and we looked, it was found three places in the Old Testament. But they had taken an actual quote from the Old Testament, but they had removed it from its context, and they had twisted its meaning and taken it to mean something actually the opposite of what God was trying to to get across. God was forbidding them from taking vengeance and from, you know, trying to get even. And instead, they had taken that phrase to mean exactly that, to justify their wrong actions. And here in their passage before us this morning, they've done essentially the same thing. The teachers have done it again. They've gone back to the Old Testament, grabbed a phrase, ignored the context, and twisted it to suit themselves, and then they've gone one extra step, and we'll get to that in just a minute. The phrase from the Old Testament is this phrase, love your neighbor. And it comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, a passage that we read last week. We read this passage last week because when they used an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, they were justifying getting vengeance and bearing grudges, which this passage tells them exactly you can't do. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. They had gone and done the exact opposite. So they had conveniently ignored this passage because it didn't fit the template that they wanted. Not that we've ever done the same thing, by the way. Have we not at times, brothers and sisters? But we ought not. So they ignored that, but they latched onto the second half of this verse. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now we would all agree loving our neighbor is probably a good thing, right? And, and they said, that's a great thing. So they latched onto that. And Jesus here quotes what they've been teaching. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. The command there is good. The problem is, well, there's actually problems. There's two of them. The first problem here with what they said was that they took this phrase and they narrowed the definition down. They defined their neighbor in a very narrow way. Some of the teachers were saying at that time that your neighbor is the one who lives near you. So it's somebody in proximity to you. And that limits who they are. It's just somebody close by. Most of the teachers of that time were saying your neighbor is someone who is like you in that they share your ethnicity, they are a Jew, and they share your faith, they are a Jew. And so your neighbor is all the Jews. They may not live next to you, they may not live near you, but all Jews are your neighbor. And so you are to love your neighbor, you're to love your fellow Jews. But anybody who is not your neighbor, well, not so much. The obligation stops there. John Lightfoot, a a commentator back from the 1600s, wrote in his commentary about this, about the feelings of the Jews at that time. Here's what he said. He says, but as to the Gentiles, as to the way that they viewed Gentiles, non-Jews, said they do not so plot their death. They don't sit around thinking about how can we kill Gentiles. But he goes on. But it's forbidden them to deliver them from death if they're in danger. For instance, as a a Jew sees one of them, Gentiles, fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out thence. For it is written... 
Thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this is not thy neighbor. So, if you're a Gentile, which is probably most of us in this room, and we go outside, we go over there and walk by Lake St. Louis, and we fall in, the Jews of that day would say, well, too bad, there goes another Gentile. If you can get out, good for you. But there was no obligation, no necessity, no, no urging here to say, well, we should help them out of the water lest they drowned. Wow. So they would agree with us. We are to love our neighbor. But if someone isn't their neighbor, well, you're kind of on your own. You know, it's pretty easy to love your neighbor if you can limit who your neighbor is. You can say, well, they're my neighbor, but they aren't. And that is the first problem here. It isn't surprising in Luke chapter 10, then, that, that Jesus was questioned when a, a lawyer said to Jesus, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus said, keep the law. And he said, you know, well, you know, what law? And Jesus said, well, what, you know, what commandments? What commandments do you think? Comprise the law. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, good, do that and you'll live. Then the guy asked, well, question then, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus responded with a story that most of you know, the story of the Good Samaritan. The question wasn't surprising. Jesus' answer was shocking. See, the answer is in the story you find out who is the man's neighbor. Who is this good Jew's neighbor? It's the Samaritan. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans were not Jewish. They were half-breeds, half-Gentile, half-Jew. Oh, And we don't have to love them because they're not my neighbor. It was a shocking thing. That was what the teachers of the day were saying. And that is the way of the world. We don't have to love our enemies. It is a natural feeling not to love our enemies. But it's not right. And the fact is, there is, while they, well, I skipped something here, and that is the second problem. It wasn't just a narrow definition of who my neighbor is. The second problem was they added a line. You see, what they said is, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. And here's the problem. There's no place where it says here, hate your enemy. They had added to it. Jesus, in all the other contrasts here, he's gone back to what he says, you have been, you have been told, you have heard it said. And he quotes from the Old Testament. Here he's quoting what the teachers say, but only half of what they say actually comes from the Old Testament Scripture. Only half of it comes from the law. And in fact, when you go back to the Old Testament law, what you discover is there are a few things that are very different from hate your enemy. One of them, for example, is in Exodus chapter 23 where it says this, If you meet your enemies ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
So you're going along the road and on your way to, you know, their version of Walmart or whatever. You're running your daily errands. And there, as you're going along, you see an ox. And it just happens to be your enemy's ox. You don't just leave it there. You turn around and head to wherever your neighbor lives and you take the ox home. Finding an ox in those days would be like, you know, finding a pickup truck (laughs) laying around. You take it home to your enemy. He goes on. Or if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it and you shall rescue it with him. So, Again, a donkey, the beast, it's like a pickup truck or a trailer, you know, it's what you haul all your stuff on, but it's too much for the, for the, for the donkey and the donkey is lying down under the burden. I couldn't find a picture of that, but I found this one. <laughs> Similar thing. There's your neighbor. <laughs> he's got a problem. <laughs> or not your neighbor, he's your enemy. So you don't just see your enemy and go, ha! Oh, serves him right, that jerk, yeah. And you don't just laugh and go on your way. Instead, he says, you stop and you help him rescue the animal. And you help rescue your enemy and get him home. That's one thing the Old Testament said to do with your enemy. Proverbs chapter 25 says this, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. If your enemy has a need, meet your enemy's need. Not only that, but it tells us that if something bad happens to your enemy, he says, do not rejoice. The scripture says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Something bad happens to your enemy, you don't go, yeah, yeah, yoo-hoo. No, you don't rejoice for that. Wow. That was all in the Old Testament. They conveniently ignored that when they said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, So Jesus responds to this statement. He says, you guys have heard, love your neighbor. And hate your enemy. But here's what I say to you. Again, following this pattern we've seen through this section. Jesus says, I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. You know, there are an awful lot of places that we can go and find an enemy. And if we can't find find an enemy somewhere, it's very easy to go make one. All it takes is a few strong differences, and we can make enemies pretty easily. We can make them easily, whether we're talking nation against nation, very easily. We have animosity and enmity spring up internationally between nations. It happens easily within our country, whether, you know, you have... Political disputes happens easily with business rivalries, sports rivalries. Happens easily, we have different agendas in politics. 
or on school boards or in neighborhood associations, if you have one of those, or even in backyard games. Very easy for us to to have enmity spring up when we have strong opinions about something. And enemies can cause a lot of grief in our life. When we go over and look in Luke chapter 6, and I won't have us turn there, but I will just put a verse up this morning. Luke chapter 6, by the way, is Luke's account or, or version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's condensed a bit. It's kind of like the Reader's Digest version. This, I'm sure, already in Matthew's account is a summary, but Luke's is briefer. But in this one section where he has this same little thing about You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And I say to you, love your enemies. There's something else that's here that gives us a little insight into some of the things that our enemies do. Because sometimes we might wonder, well, who is my enemy? Well, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Sometimes enemies hate us. Very often there's animosity here. There's resentment. There's bitterness. So our enemies can be people who hate us. They have bitterness and resentment. But also enemies sometimes are those people who curse us. And cursing can be all kinds of things from cussing us out to slandering us, telling all kinds of negative things, bad things about us to others, and sometimes lying about us, making up things that aren't, simply aren't true. They can also, he says here, abuse us. I like the way the King James translated that was spitefully use us. In other words, use, use us to create harm. Use us to take advantage of us. It's people who try to, try to cause harm, to, to try to cause us to lose, to, to have loss, to exploit us. And then back here in verse 44 of our passage here in Matthew 5, our enemies are people who may persecute us. Any and all of those things someone may do, and that's what makes them our enemy. They may hate us, curse us, abuse us, use us, persecute us. And so when we think about people who are doing those kinds of things to us, and then Jesus comes along and says, love your enemy, that makes it a pretty hard thing to do, doesn't it? To love someone like that? Jesus is asking an awful lot of us here, He's calling for us to love hard, (laughs) to love people that are hard to love, not just folks that are easy to love. And that raises the question probably for us, how are you and I supposed to love someone who hates us, to love someone who curses us, to love someone who lies about us, to love someone who cheats us, who abuses us, who, who steals from us, who persecutes us? How are we supposed to love someone like that? How are we supposed to somehow generate these feelings of love for such a person? The answer to that question, of course, is Jesus didn't say have feelings for them. He said love them. The word that's there for love is the word, if you've ever looked at some of the different words, and there's a few different words for love in the Bible. This is the word agape. Agape is a selfless, others-centered love. 
It's the kind of love that is described in the passage that Rob had us read earlier, which I didn't know he was going to have us read. thought about that as I was thinking through this sermon, and there it was. I, like, I love that. It's the kind of love that's there in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. It is kind. It is not envious. It does not boast. It isn't proud. It isn't rude. It isn't self-seeking. It doesn't seek its own way. It isn't easily angered. It goes on and on. And nowhere in there in that list when you go through those wonderful descriptions there in 1 Corinthians 13, nowhere does it talk about feelings. It only talks about heart attitudes and actions. This kind of love, this agape love, is not necessarily devoid of feelings, but it acts and it loves despite feelings. If you don't, it doesn't sit around waiting for feelings of love before it does something. It simply gets busy. It's the same kind of love, moms and dads, that you, you have at, you know, at 1.35 in the morning. When you have had a horribly exhausting day and you finally are able to collapse into bed around midnight, and you've got a horribly exhausting day coming up tomorrow. You know that. And so you're just grateful that maybe you're going to get, you know, five or six hours of sleep. And at 1.35, you were, you were woken up to your child throwing up. Yeah. Lots of you have been there. And your body says, no! And your mind says, no! I don't want to get up! But it is love, not feeling, that gets you up to go do what needs to be done. You go and you, you get your child and you take them to the bathroom and you sit with them while they you know, do the rest of their stuff and you, you start to clean them up and comfort them and you, you tend to their needs and then you get them changed and you get them back to their room where you clean their floor and you clean up the, the bed and throw those things in the laundry and put new sheets and blankets on there and finally you tuck them back into bed and you get back to your bed about 2.25 and drift off to sleep only to be woken up at 3.15 and you start the whole process all over again with patience and kindness and tenderness. Not because you feel it, but because that's what love does. That's the kind of love Jesus calls for us to have for our enemies. It's not necessarily devoid of feelings, but it's not based on feelings. It looks for what do they need, and I try to meet their needs. And it desires good for them, even though they only have a desire for bad for us. That's what that kind of love is. We're to love them. Not only does he say we are to love them, he says pray for them. Pray for them who persecute you. By the context here, I can assume that when Jesus says pray for your enemies, he's assuming that you are not going to be praying, oh God, may all of their teeth break out of their head. May their bones shatter 
And may they be dismembered. And may they die a painful death. I don't think that's the prayer he has in mind. I think the prayer he has in mind is, Lord God, I struggle with that man. I struggle with that woman. Because of all the things that they have done to me. But God, would you begin working and changing my attitude and my heart toward them? And God, would you bless them? Their daughter is sick. Lord, would you heal their daughter? I know, Father, that they're miserable at their work. Would you change the situation at their work? Father God, I think they're struggling financially. Would you meet their financial needs? Father, most of all, they're lost and going to hell because they don't know Jesus. Would you bring someone to their life who they'll listen to to share the love of Christ? And Lord, maybe would you even let that be me? You know, I have a feeling if we pray that way about our enemies, things are going to change in our feelings. Things are going to change in our hearts. And it will make it easier to go and show the love that Jesus has called us to give them. At the end of the Civil War, President Lincoln was asked, Why are you giving pardons to Southerners? They said, Don't you desire to destroy your enemies? And Lincoln, with his customary wit and grace, if you've ever read much of what he said. and He said, isn't that what I do when I make them my friends? Destroy my enemy by making them my friend. That really is what Jesus is calling us to do. Whether they, be, whether they become our friend or not isn't really up to us, but we are to be their friend. We are to love them. Pray for them. Which raises a question because this is so ridiculously hard. It raises the question, why in the world would I want to do that? Why in the world would I want to love that person? Whether they are you know, my classmate, whether they are a business rival, whether they're my neighbor, whether they're you know, my political opponent, whether they are... You know, somebody in my family, whether it's somebody who has rejected me, hurt me, destroyed me, why would I want to love that person? It's not natural. And it lets my enemy get away with all the wrong stuff they're doing to me. That's not right. Not fair. Why should I want to love them? Well, I could say because Jesus says so. But I put that in the list of things last week. I won't put that in this week's things. He gives us two more reasons. Look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just and the unjust. God shows His love to all men. It's a thing that theologians call common grace. He sends common grace. 
He sends great blessings to you, his children. He sends blessings to Putin and to, you know, name your favorite dictator or evil person. It says he he causes the sun to shine on them. And that's a gift. The sun doesn't shine automatically, you know that. The only reason the sun shines is God says, sun, shine. And it says he sends the rain. Without the rain, there are no crops that grow. There are no cows in the fields. There's no food for us, is the point. Not only that, it's a pretty dry and desolate place without rain. We are creatures who are dependent upon water. And God in His grace sends sunshine and God in His grace sends rain. God in His grace sends food. God in His grace provides us with all kinds of things, wonderful things to enjoy. And both good people enjoy those things and evil people enjoy those things. Here's His point. God gives love and grace to people that don't deserve it. And here's the next point. If we call ourselves children of God, then we should follow in the footsteps of our Father. Now, by the way, Jesus isn't saying here that we become children of God by loving our enemies. That's not the point. It's not, not what it's saying. And we can prove that by... Other passages, many of them, but we can't earn sonship. I'll just put one up here. How do you become a child of God? How do you become a son of God? John chapter 1 says it very plainly in verse 12. He says, yet to all who received him, the him in context is Jesus, to those who believed in his, Jesus' name, to he gave, he, that's God, gave the right to become children of God. God made us His children, not by our doing good things, not by us loving other people. God makes us His children when we receive, when we, when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. And His point is here that if we are going to be God's children, if we are God's children, we should have the family resemblance. Just like I can look at most of your children and figure out who their parents are. We look and we can see, oh, there's mom. Oh, yeah, there's dad. (laughs) We can see it in you. And Jesus is saying here, if you are sons of the Father, if you are children of God, it should show up in the way that you love. And just like God loves both the righteous and the unrighteous, we are to give love both to those who love us and those who are our enemies. We're to love them. Augustine said this way, he said, good is good, good for good is natural, evil for good is devilish, but good for evil is divine. In other words, what happens is when you and I love our enemy, it marks us out, it demonstrates that we really are God's children. There's a second reason here in this text why we should do this. And it's actually in the next two verses. Look at those. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus says, you know, tax gatherers and tax gatherers to a Jew were among the, the lowest of lows. Those folks were really, really vile. You see, a tax gatherer was generally a, in, in Palestine, in Israel, a tax gatherer was generally a Jew. And as a Jew, number one, they went around and collected taxes. And who of us loves to pay taxes? Nobody. So that number one is a strike against them. People hate them because they collect taxes, especially if taxes are high. Secondly, the way that tax gatherers worked was that they got commission on the taxes collected. And so that was a little incentive for them to tend to be crooked. If I'm getting a commission, well, I get a bigger commission the more money I collect. And they were crooked and they made, they overcharged people and they took advantage of people. And so they were tax collectors and they were crooks. And to make matters worse, these crooks are collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman government whom Jews hate. And so they have sold out their own people to go work for the enemy. And so they are traitors. So they're traitorous crooks. And even those traitorous crooks Love people who love them. And he says, then we go to the Gentiles, the people who don't know God. People who don't know God, they still greet and love people who love them. And so he says, what are you doing, guys? If you claim to be God's children, but you just love the people who love you, you're not doing any better than the worst sinners among the Jews and the people who don't know God at all. You're no better than them. So he's saying, God expects more of you as his children. But here's the really important thing to notice in there. Notice, go back. For if you love those who love you, verse 46, what reward do you have? See, another reason here why you should be incentivized, you should want to, (laughs) love your enemy, is there's a reward connected with that. I read earlier from Proverbs chapter 25. Let's go back there to Proverbs 25. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heat burning coals on his head. Now, that that can mean a couple of different things. What it doesn't mean is you're hoping to really punish the dude. That's not the point. It just says, at, at the worst, he just doesn't know how to handle that. And it gets him. Why are you being nice to me? But that's not the point. The point is that last line. And the Lord will reward you. Oh, you know what that tells me? God understands just how hard it is to love that person who's your enemy. He understands just how hard it is for you to swallow your pride, for you to be nursing your wounds as you bless them and you pray for them and you do good to them. It's hard. And God says, I notice. And there's reward coming. We've said all the way through this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' focus, not on, his focus isn't on now. His focus is on what's coming. There are rewards coming. And they're worth it. He says, what reward do you have if you don't even love? You know, if all you do is love easy. Jesus says, love hard. Love the hard people. There's reward there. Well, in verse 48, Jesus brings this section of the sermon to a close. And I want to end 
as we come here. He brings this section to a conclusion. The section began back up in verse 20, where Jesus said this back up in verse 20. If you look up uh, just a little bit, he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There Jesus said, hey, you want to get to heaven? You've got to have a better righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders here in Israel, the people that everybody, when they thought of, who are the righteous people? Who are the holy people? There's nobody who could be more holy and more righteous than those people, the scribes and the Pharisees in all their regalia. And they they really work hard to keep all the law. These folks have got to be the most righteous people there are. And Jesus said, if you want to get to heaven, you've got to be more righteous than they are. And that's got everybody scratching their heads going, whoa, then who can be that righteous? And it's probably got all the religious leaders going, whoa, what's he saying? And then Jesus, in this whole section, six different times says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and in each case what he does is say, here's what you've heard taught, here's what, how you've understood the law, but let me tell you what it means. And by the time he's done now, as he finished with this last one, what he has done is exposed that these folks who thought they were so holy and righteous, and everybody else looked at and said, whoa, those have got to be the holy righteous people. What they've been exposed as, as they are murderers, and they are adulterers, and they are liars. And they are vengeful people. And they are hateful people. And now the question is, who then, or how then, can anyone go to heaven? What does it take to get to heaven? And who can get there? Verse 48. You therefore must be Perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you get to heaven? Jesus finishes what he said back in verse 20. How do you get to heaven? Be perfect. Oh, cool. How many of us today qualify? That's what I thought. None of us. That has been exactly the point that Jesus is making through all of these comparisons and contrasts, taking them back to the law. We start looking for loopholes immediately. Be perfect. What he must mean by that is something different than perfect. What he must mean by that is be pretty good. You know, be better than them. You know, kind of like the guy outrunning the bear. I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. You know, maybe that's how it is. God grades on the curve. And all we have to do is be better than Hitler and better than Putin, you know, or better than whoever the villain of the day is, and I'll be okay. And so we try to redefine perfect. And there are lots of theologians when they look at this and they say, rightly, the word perfect here can be translated not meaning perfect, meaning mature, complete. That must be what he means. And it can be taken that way in a sense. The problem is Jesus defines it. You must be perfect as, just like, your Father is perfect. How good do you have to be to get to heaven? You have to be as good as God. That pretty well sets the standard. And what it means by that standard is we're in trouble. By the way, 
three ways that we can take this, as best as I can tell, I'm not a Greek scholar, Pastor Larry is, I'm not. But best as I look at this, there's three ways in the Greek that we can take this, this sentence. And I think from my understanding as I look at it, I see that God in his infinite wisdom put it there exactly that way because all three are actually perfectly true. And way one that this, this sentence can mean, you ther- therefore must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect, means this. The standard is absolutely impossible. Not a single one of us can go to heaven because none of us can be as good as God. That's exactly, I think, what this text means, number one. And that's bad news, except for the fact that there's good news here. And Jesus led with it at the beginning of the sermon. We go back to verse 3, where Jesus began the Beatitudes. Beatitude number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He just said there, these people are getting to heaven. How do they get to heaven? By being poor in spirit. If you were here that week, you remember what that meant? It's those who recognize, I got nothing. When God looks at me, what he sees is a sinful person who deserves hell, and that is every one of us. The difference is the poor in spirit are the ones who say, God, I got nothing. And if I'm going to get to heaven, the only way I'm going to get to heaven is something you've got to do. And God has provided a way. God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 puts it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's missed being good like God. But it goes on. And are justified. There's a way to be justified, made right before God. We are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The only way to heaven, brothers and sisters, the only way to heaven is by believing in Jesus Christ, the one God sent. God himself became man, died on the cross, rose again from the the dead to rescue us from sin. If you're here this morning or if you're watching online and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible is saying, and Jesus is saying here, you need to trust Jesus. Because there's no other way to get there. Because the standard is impossible. Now, when you trust in Jesus, God puts Jesus' righteousness on you, and He says, you are good enough. Because you have the righteousness of Jesus. That's incredible. There's two more ways this can be taken. I'm going to hit them real fast. And that's this. Jesus here is saying not only is it an impossible standard, but we can see that this statement also says this. Jesus is giving us a continual aim. He's giving us a target to shoot for. As those who are Jesus' followers, as those who have come to to trust Jesus as our Savior, we are going to heaven already, not because we've earned it, but because He's given it to us as a gift. But now... What we should be doing and what we desire to do is to live as close to perfect as I can. God said, be holy because I'm holy. He calls us and Jesus calls us here to live as perfect as we can. Then we're going to fail, won't we? Because we do. But our aim is always to pick up, say, God, I'm sorry, I did it again. Dust ourselves off and 
Start back on the road trying to live like Jesus, trying to be God-like in our character. It's a continual aim. Great preacher Spurgeon said, you stretch for the highest conceivable standard and don't be satisfied till you reach it. That's what we do. Lastly, this statement, be perfect as the Lord your God is perfect, also is looking ahead past where we are now to where we're going to be one day. It looks to the future. It's a, this, this verb, as best as I can tell, has present implications, but it's also looking to the future. You will be. You shall be perfect. And that's great news. We have a destiny that's been promised to us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, one day we will be what we should be. It's going to happen in a moment, the Scripture says, in the twinkling of an eye. First John chapter 3, verse 2 puts it this way, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we shall be or what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, when Jesus comes, we will be like Him. Because you will see Him as He is. There's going to be a moment of transformation. All the garbage will be gone. And everything that we should be, finally will be. Good news. Jesus calls for us in this way. Just to go back to where we are this morning. To love hard. To love like God loves. It's above us. But if we seek to live this way and look to Him, He will enable us to grow and to change. And by the way, we need that. Far too many Christians are known for being judgmental, critical, spiteful, hateful. How we need to be known as those people who love even their enemies. Father, thank You. We needed this. This is such important stuff. May we, well, we confess this morning we fail too often. We don't love when we should. We get our eyes on ourselves and we think about our hurts and we think about uh, what people have done and we forget to remember what you've done for us. You loved us while we were your enemies. You loved us while we were in rebellion against you. You loved us while we spit in your face. Now, Father, may we as those who have received your grace, turn around and love others in that same way that you've loved us. May this church be known as people who love, even our enemies. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.